Want to earn 20 to 25 hours of literacy professional development? Check out a new online course led by host Susan Lambert, Foundations to the Science of Reading. Join fellow educators in this self-paced course designed to equip you with the knowledge and skills to bring evidence-based literacy practices into your classroom. Explore eight modules that will strengthen your understanding of the science of reading and earn a course completion certificate. Find out more information, access a preview, and register at amplify.com slash SORcourse. What if a change in classroom practice could lead to change in reading outcomes? What should reading instruction include to ensure all students have the opportunity to succeed? What does cognitive science tell us about learning to read, and why aren't those learnings applied in our classrooms? Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert from Amplify Education. Join us every two weeks as we talk with Science of Reading experts to explore what it takes to transform our classrooms and develop confident and capable readers. Carolyn Strom is our guest today, a researcher at NYU who is currently leading an initiative in New York City for preschool teachers called Cortex to Classroom. As a former classroom teacher, Caroline is super invested in bridging the gap between research and practice, particularly in the early grades. Today, Caroline and I talk about everything from classroom practice to reading research to cognitive science to neuroscience. I know you'll enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed the conversation. There's really a lot to glean here. So welcome, Carolyn. We're super excited to have you on the episode today. Thank you. I'm psyched to be here. Um, We always like to start by asking a bit about background and like maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in this early literacy space. Yeah. Um, well, in college, um, I took a class on um, public education, actually. I was an English major, and there was a class on you could take public education and English, teaching English, what it means to teach English. And um, I really learned all about the system of inequity in our public education system. Um, it was really about that and about how everything sort of the education that you have access to in this country often falls along a tax base and racial lines. And it was sort of the first time I, I knew about this. Um, and I was, I got passionate about this, um, especially having grown up feeling like I had had a really strong public education. Um, and I sort of like, couldn't believe it. (laughs) You know, it sort of, it felt (laughs) to me like, what? Like, things in this, the public, like this is not the land of opportunity kind of thing. I was really idealistic. Right. And so I sort of said, really, um, it's just crazy. Um, and so after college, um, I decided to teach in a high poverty area, um, you know, and sort of in sort of to address this inequity, right? Like I want to give back. Um, and so I taught in Compton, California, um, first grade, first and second grade. Um, and it was a high poverty area with all of the challenges that under-resourced schools have. Um, and then, you know, there was just a lot of challenges in the community. Um, so a lot of my students' parents were incarcerated or homeless or lived in temporary housing. Um, and uh, I had to teach them how to read. Wow. So you just like, you just like d- dove right into what you were passionate about. 
Yeah, I said, you know, I know about this problem. Um, so what? A, maybe I can use this opportunity at 22 years old to do something about it. I was sort of, yeah, uh, idealistic. And there, and there was an, and they were, you know, there was an emergency credential system in Compton at the time. They were giving out emergency credentials because there was a teacher shortage. Got it. So, you know, I didn't even realize there was a teacher shortage until I took this class in college. No one tells you, like, our country, we have a teacher shortage. Like, the system that's in place to educate kids has, like, a teacher shortage, by the way. Like, that's one of the first problems. And that was what I, you know, and so I said, okay, great. So I'm going to do this. And, um, yeah, I guess I dove right in. Wow. So you didn't even like you weren't one of those people that thought, oh, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be a classroom teacher. This wasn't even in your sort of realm of possibility no, at that point. No, no, I did teach for America. Okay. Um, yeah. And I it it wasn't until I sort of took this class and heard about all of these sort of statistics and the state of inequity and then heard about Teach for America, which at the time uh, it's changed a lot, but at the time it was a very, it's 20 years ago. Uh, it was a very <laughs> grassroots movement Yeah. Um, to take people who wouldn't ordinarily go into teaching. So who didn't have an undergraduate degree in teaching, you know, I didn't, I wasn't getting certified in my undergraduate Yeah. to take people like that who didn't have an interest in teaching and sort of um, explain, I don't know, they, they were sort of, they understood this uh, aspects of inequity that I'm talking about. And so the organization spoke to me in that way. Okay. And their mission, their mission was to ensure that, you know, all children in this country have access to a high quality education. That was yeah. the mission at the time. And I was like, yeah, I'm down. So yeah. they, they place you in uh, school. They placed at the time in schools where people had emergency, needed emergency credentials. They needed... So you know what I'm saying? They needed yeah. teachers who qualified for emergency credentials because there was a shortage. Right. So how what like so how did you get from classroom teacher to what you're doing now? <laughs> uh, so it's a uh, so I so uh, so I was a first grade teacher, and I um, got really fascinated about teaching uh, reading in particular because that's what you teach in first grade. Yeah. Uh, primarily, and um, you know I I watching these kids read and being in charge of teaching these kids to read made me really curious about how it worked and seeing the words that they struggled over, seeing um, the kinds of spellings they made, um, seeing the way that they were trying to make sense of these squiggles on a page and match them to sounds to form words. It was fascinating uh, intellectually for me and also practically because I needed to know how to sure. do it. <laughs> Um, and I, it was amazing. Some kids did really well. Some kids struggled. Um, you know, there were a bunch of kids who were learning English as a second or third language. Maybe they spoke two different languages at home and now, you know, and so, um, and then kids who were coming in who had trouble paying attention or who were, you know, had just lived in, they're living in a shelter. So each night they're living in a different place. Um, and, you know, kids brought emotional baggage to this complex task. And that whole, that sort of system in general, just, I, I really was like, oh my gosh, I'm fascinated by this. I'm passionate about this. And actually like doing it with kids is super fun. Hmm. Um, and we were given a really strong curriculum at the time because California had had all this um, influx of um, uh, curriculum materials. So Got it. Um, I learned a lot uh, from teaching open court. 
which is systematic violence. So yeah. Uh, yeah. after that, you know, I taught for a while and that I, I'm spending time on that because um, it, it, it really, it, it, it was what has like, it stays, it stayed with me. That's why I stayed with it for 10 years. You know, it's something I became really interested in um, and wanted to learn more about. So I pursued graduate school, um, my master's in reading development, and then a PhD to really, you know, learn as much as I could about this because I didn't, I felt that I learned everything there sort of was to know about the classroom over the course of, you know, 10 years and reading. Um, I learned a lot, but I felt like there were things that um, kids I couldn't reach, um, particularly kids with dyslexia, and I wanted to learn more. Um, so I ended up studying it and then doing um, my, some of my own research, but also, uh, you know, becoming interested in, in the gap between all of the research that exists and uh, how and what's actually playing out in classrooms and how teachers are prepared and trained. Like that sort of blew my mind because I entered graduate school as a teacher, really, you know. Yeah. And then I discovered all of this research. Um, and I'd been teaching for 10 years and I was doing a pretty good job because we had a strong curriculum, but I didn't understand the background. Um, and a lot of my research focused on interviews, uh, interviewing kids about reading, interviewing parents about reading, interviewing teachers and trying to understand what they know about reading and reading development um, and sort of figure out what uh, what the gap, what the gaps are. Right. Yeah. And, and their thinking and their mindsets versus what we know and bringing these two worlds together um, is sort of. That's how I ended up here. Yeah. I remember one of the first conversations we ever had together was about that, was about all the work that you do with talking about teacher, talking with teachers and talking with parents and, and yeah, just closing that gap. So in sort of this course of conducting all of those interviews, what, what, what have you learned from those? Yeah. Um, so there's been lots of different sets of interviews, um, over the last couple of years, um, cause it's the method I really believe in, but I think when it comes to, you know, the most recent stuff has been interviewing, um, preschool teachers and, uh, parents of preschoolers, uh, about what they know about reading and how hmm. they think reading develops. Um, and there's sort of these three common, um, ideas I've come up uh, I've come up with in analyzing the interview data. The first is, you know, a lot of teachers and parents believe that words are learned as like holes, as a whole pattern, almost like we, we learn to read a word as a picture. We learn to read words by instantly by sight. And that's just ah. how you learn to read. Um, hmm. So that's one, one thing that keeps coming up in the data. Teacher, preschool teachers will say, you know, I got to teach them sight words because um, that's going to prepare them for kindergarten. So you'll see in a preschool room a little sight word wall and lists that go home. Um, as though that's how we learn to read. When we really know that uh, eventually, yes, you're going to be able to read. You want kids to be able to read words automatically, but they first have to learn to decode. Um, so that's been one of the areas that I've been working on. Um, you know, and then one of the, the second sort of thing that's come up in the interviews um, is that... Um, you know, preschool is all about discovery and play, um, and there's no room for direct instruction um, because direct instruction is somehow antithetical to preschool, um, <laughs> right? 
um, when, when really what we know from the research is that direct instruction is a very uh, strong method of teaching, right? It, it ha yields good results and also it can be um, super fun. Um, if done in the right way. If done in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those, you know, and, and then and then a lot of my work has been on um, modeling and sort of coaching teachers um, on how to um, make it fun and exciting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's sort of, I think, where where the most interesting uh, work gets done when we talk about these sort of um, under understandings, right? And then try to communicate sort of um, what's going on uh, in the research. Those conversations with teachers and parents, I think I, I learned so much from. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the third thing that, that comes up a lot um, in the interviews that I've done um, and in the conversations that I've ended up having um, is this idea that um, reading is a natural capacity um, and develops spontaneously. So a lot of preschool teachers, um, you know, if you ask them, oh, how do kids learn to read? Um, you know, they'll say, we have, you have to read aloud, read aloud to them. Reading aloud is the key, right? And we know that reading aloud is really important. Um, and it's super important for vocabulary and comprehension development. Um, but that's, it's not enough, right? There are kids that are read to um, every single night since the day they were born, three books a day, who still have dyslexia, right? Or who still struggle to break the code. Right. Um, and we know that our brains are not wired to read. This is something from the neuroscience that we know, right? Our brains are not wired to read. Written language, and you know this, you know, and probably your listeners know this, um, but that you know, written language is a relatively new recent invention. It's only five to 6,000 years old. Um, whereas spoken language is much older and we, you know, have been speaking for tens of thousands of years and only writing for five or 6,000 years. And we're not wired for it. We actually have to do what I call, you know, a neurological backflip to teach our brains to read. And um, the fact that we know that uh, and then preschool teachers and parents of preschoolers and kindergartners say things like, or believe, you know, or have been taught that reading is natural and develops if you're just surrounded by print and read and talk to your child. Um, all of those things are important, but we, we also know that it doesn't develop naturally. It's not a natural capacity. We're not wired for reading and that that's really important. Um, yeah. it's so it's, it's really, we're going to talk about science of reading and sort of your view on it in just a minute. But um, what's, what's really interesting is the focus on preschool teachers and the focus on parents. What made you sort of lead you to talk to those folks? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, several reasons. But one, I think, you know, the other thing we know from the research is that early intervention is best. Right. Right. It's really good to intervene early. If you know from, you know, predictive statistics that a certain segment of the population is going to struggle with reading. Right. If kids are in Head Start, if they're three or four years old, all of these kids, they're 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 at risk. Right. We know that. Then then we really need to start there. 
so it's that's one uh, reason. I think you know I've worked with too many second, third, fourth grade teachers who say that these kids are coming to them not reading. Well, if we know that the earliest skills, right, phonemic awareness and letter sound correspondence, um, those two skills are so important and they can be developed in three, four, and five year olds, then that's really where our, our focus should be. Um, and I think we, you know, with education, we think about K-12 so much and, and preschool teachers get left out. The preschool realm gets left out because we think that, you know, it's like K-12, K-12 and pre-K. Right. Yeah. Right? It's like, right, right, but yeah. no, no, it should be like pre-K is so important. <laughs> and then K-12, like, right. <laughs> I, you know, and so uh, that's why I focus on that preschool teachers. I also, you know, preschool teachers typically aren't don't get access certainly to to the research um we, we complain that k-12 teachers don't know the science of reading but preschool teachers are traditional uh, you know always often not always but often left out um of of rigorous professional development activities and um there's often paraprofessionals teaching kids um who need additional training so yeah. again it's this area that that of high kids we know are at risk for reading failure um, and yet we're not giving them a lot. And if you work with preschoolers or you have preschoolers or you know preschoolers, um, their parents are a big part of their life, right? right. And um, almost all of the decisions about their lives are being made by parents. So their parents. So if you want to reach these kids, um, you're going to have to involve their families and go with their parents. You can't really, you know, if, you, if you've walked into a preschool, you know, it's, it's all about kids and families. So I can't, we can't, in order to, to bridge this gap, right, the science of reading with preschool teachers and their parents and preschoolers' parents, like, we, ha we have to work with their parents. So that yeah. means we have to translate this into other languages. Um, that means we have to use more visuals that you mean, yeah, you know, there's a whole, there's, we're now communicating this for parents. If we're serious about, um, I hate the term early intervention, but I keep on, you know, if we're serious about early intervention. Yeah. It seems like it's a, um, a great prevention conversation, right? Yes. So the earlier we can start, um, the, the better off we are in terms yeah. of making it happen for kids. Yeah, exactly. And now, yeah. you know, it's, and it's really about applying the science. Like if you look at the reading science, sure. But also look at like the science of early childhood. We sure. know that if you, if you do home visits, if you in integrate all these different kinds of rich experiences early, it pays off for the kids and for society and for, yeah. for, for families. Absolutely. So like, let's do it early. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that science of reading then. So it'd be interesting for us to hear it from your point of view. Um, if you were going to give our listeners just the Carolyn Strom version of the science of reading, how would you explain it? Interesting. Well, I would say that right now, um, the term science of reading um, is being used, I think, mainly to describe you know, uh, studying reading in a systematic scientific way, right? So looking at research that is done systematically and scientifically. Um, that's how I, I believe people are talking about it, right? Like um, we need to look at the science at what, what's been proven, right? Um, in order to, you know, make sure we're doing right by our kids and that science yeah. should inform practice. Yeah. Um, but I would say, um, and it, so that's, I think the general, that's the sort of general understanding right now, but, um, 
I would say that the science of reading needs to include and does include the neuroscience, um, which is really not just, um, you know, experimental data or looking at studies that are on reaction times and reading, right? But that is looking at um, the structure of our brain and how reading ma is mapped in the brain and how we measure that using fMRI data. Um, and I think the science of reading is using sort of <laughs> taking advantage of what we know from brain imaging now um, and having that inform um, what we know. That's, yeah, that's great because I think a lot of the conversation of science of reading, we're talking about the simple view of reading, which really comes out of the cognitive science world. Exactly. Um, yeah. And let, let's, let's maybe focus on that side of it first, and then we'll get to the neuroscience part mm -hmm. of it. But I know you've done in your interviews with teachers and things, you've done some work with um, helping uh, educators sort of develop an alternative visual metaphor. I think we all know about Scarborough, but mm -hmm. we can talk about that mm -hmm. for a minute too, if you mm -hmm. want to, mm -hmm. but yeah. you've done some expanded work around that. Yeah. So what I've found is, uh, you know, whenever I do professional development um, with teachers or teach my students at NYU, my undergraduate and graduate students, obviously we, we talk about the rope, right? The simple view of reading and understanding that reading has these two strands, these two core strands with substrands. Um, and every time that I have presented it and then we discuss it, a lot of teachers will push back and, and say, you know, this, where is um, the environment that the kid is growing up in, right? This is like a theoretical model. I get it. But what does that mean for Juan, right? What does that mean for Keisha? What is, what is this? What is the, the connection between this? Um, and, and sometimes they shut, shut down because it seems a little bit, uh, it's a simple idea, it's a simple view of reading, but it is still a theoretical construct, right? It, there's, no, there's nothing in that that sort of takes into account what kids are, are dealing with. Yeah. Um, so what I've done is I, um, I sort of have chained, it's hard to describe because it's a visual, um, <laughs> but I've taken, you know, the rope and I've sort of turned it into, um, these two roots, um, of a tree. So, and, and that this, and sort of explaining that this tree grows in soil and soil is the environment. Okay. So, so let's yeah. just, for our listeners that haven't maybe gotten the visual of Scarborough, Scarborough's mm -hmm. rope or Scarborough's braid in their, in their mind. Now yeah. we're talking sort of these two elements of, yep word recognition and language comprehension, comprehension. Yes. that sort of weave together over time, right, to, to build this rope. So that's sort of the theoretical that's piece the theory. that you're talking yes. about, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And um, exactly. And so the idea is that in order to read, right, you must have word recognition skills. Yep. You need to be able to lift the words off the page, but you also need to understand what you're reading, right? right. And so word recognition is absolutely essential. Um, but it's not enough to become a reader. You, you need both. Right. Yes. And so then you turned that around and put it into something different. Yeah. Well, so p the teachers I'm working with kind of, they get it. They get that yep. idea, right? They get that idea. Um, but they also will tune out if you deliver a professional development without acknowledging their realities, right? That actually to learn words, when a kid is learning words, they're impacted by the words they're hearing in their environment, 
right? Mm, um, yeah. The vocabulary they know is impacted by their environment. Uh, all thought, all all of a kid's learning is rooted in their environment, and um, the rope, the the simple view of reading doesn't really account for environment. Um, and I think that if we want to reach teachers, we need to sort of um, present them with models that reflect their day-to-day realities. Yeah, and that um, that tree sort of visual, so I can see it in my head right now, sort of makes sense. So if you're in an environment that's uh, literature rich or reading rich, I would say, so you get lots of rain and you know lots of leaves on the trees and everything's really lovely and green. But if you're in the environment of a desert, it's a little more complicated. Yes, exactly, exactly, Got it. exactly, and that's actually, that's funny that you mentioned that, because that's actually how I came up with it, um, in a way, um, because I was in a car going over the Brooklyn Bridge um, a couple years ago, and I saw this little tree, um, like, sort of on the side, like a very urban, it was the entrance to the Brooklyn Bridge, and it was like this tree that was like, had no leaves. It was like all short and sort of struggling to exist. It looked like, right. It wasn't like, and I think I had just come from Oregon with my family where we had these like huge wow. trees, <laughs> yeah. and, you know what I mean? And I was like, Oh my God, like, yep. I can't even believe these are both called trees. The context has influenced both of the, you know, these, this Oregon forest, there's like all these places you can like take tree baths and be around these amazing trees. And now here's this like sad little urban tree. And um, I, I just thought to myself, like, God, context matters. And oh, my gosh, this is the metaphor that makes sense for teachers. Because when you tell them, you know, here's how reading works and context matters, it doesn't, we need to explain things using um, metaphor, real yeah. metaphors. Yeah. And um, I think the tree metaphor makes a lot of sense because you can't think about a tree without thinking about its environment in the same way that you really should not be thinking about a kid's reading development without thinking about the environment in which how, they're existing. So how do we help teachers? So what does that mean for in the classroom, right? So what, like, how can we take those different trees, if you will, in different environments and, and sort of apply it to what teachers can do in the classroom from that? Right. Okay. Well, so it's going to depend on the age, let's say, of the kids, right? Because that's the environment. So like, right. I'll, t- I'll take for preschoolers, for example, Great. right? Like, for preschoolers, who is a preschooler, right? What are they dealing with? And um, what is going on in their local community? Well, one thing we know about like three and four year olds is that they aren't gonna pay attention for very long if it's not super fun or engaging, right? That's typical of like a four year old. That's the four year old's world. So when we talk about word recognition and phonological awareness and phonics, we have to make it extremely engaging and extremely fun, right? Like, and use words that they know and use words that they find fun and um, that they connect to. And when we're taking a, a word apart into its individual phonemes, use objects that are, get them excited and get an appeal to them, right? So I guess that's a small and very specific example, but I guess, you know, it sounds so simple to be like, get to know who your students are. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you, you really have to get to know who your students are if you want to connect with them, 
right? So you can't just be like, okay, I'm teaching in this research-based way. Research says that 20 to 30 minutes a day of phonemic awareness is, you know, is important, and it is important to manipulate phonemes, and I'm going to do that now. Like, you're teaching preschool, right? You need to do this in a way that's, like, really engaging, or uh, the kids are going to yeah. shut out, shut down. Yeah. Right? So... Yeah. So there's, I think there's like an environment that happens outside of the classroom, but you're actually talking about making, like right now you're talking about making the context of the, you know, what we can control within the classroom, really, really rich environments then that speak yes. to that, that kid. Yes. And I, I think both of those environments are really important. Yeah. It's thinking about what they're bringing, what language they're bringing, right? Like, so if, if if they're speaking Spanish at home or they're speaking Arabic at home or they're speaking Hindi at home, which many kids um, that, you know, I work with are speaking these all these different languages, their word recognition is, is going to be different, their word recognition trajectory, and they're going to be struggling with certain phonemes, right? If right. they don't have those in that, in if they don't have those phonemes in their language. Yeah. So that's one example of how the external sort yep. of environment, but then yes, the internal environment of the classroom and knowing who your kids are developmentally um, it, it, you know, and what they're interested in and what they know that that's huge. Both environments yeah. are critical. That um, makes sense because what we don't want to do is we don't want to use home environment as an excuse to say, well, this kid can't learn how to read or right. can't, you know, right. Yeah. rather, right. Quite the opposite. We want to know what they're bringing and what their strengths are and what their resources are. Right. I always, to kids who are in preschool that are learning two languages, you know, one at home and, and one in school, I always tell them I'm so impressed. That is hard work. Right. I only speak English. I can understand Spanish and I can decode Hebrew, but I can't speak another language. That's incredible that, the, you know, they're three or four years old and they're going to speak two languages. That's huge. Right. So we should use their words, you know, in in our classrooms. I mean, that's kind of what we call culturally responsive teaching. You know, when you, you use what the kids are bringing from home and in your lessons. And I think culturally responsive teaching is often somehow seen as separate from the science of reading. Right. And uh, that's not good, right? Because cult all teaching should be culturally responsive. You should always be responding to who your students are as human beings in a culture, right? Um, and getting to know them. And you should also always be basing your instruction in the science of reading and what we yeah. know about reading. That, that makes so much sense to me because, you know, even when I talk to educators now about the simple view of reading, I always remind them that simple and easy are, they're, they're not the same thing, right? Um, so just because we have this model of the simple view of reading from cognitive science that sort of has helped us, there's mm -hmm. a lot of other complicating factors in there the classroom. There are. That's a, that's a really great point. And also, I think it was a mistake to call it the simple view of reading. I really do. I think it, it should just be called like the two components of reading. In the research, it's often called like the component view. Sometimes, uh, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's it it's it's the model that is framing reading as having two components. Yeah. Right. That makes and sense. we know that reading has more than two components, obviously. Motivation plays a fact, all this other stuff, right? But the quote simple view is really the view that talks about two components. Right. I think simple turns people off and um and it's not simple, right? It's obviously very complicated because <laughs> people are spending a lot of time and energy on it. Right. So, uh, but I love it, the 
I love the fact that that you're using that as a foundation, right? So that's still a foundation for what you're doing. Yes, um, but then yeah. paying attention to, you know, all of these other factors in the classroom that, that, you know, when individuals come to us, we have to pay attention to. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think for the field, um, the research field too, uh, we need to merge these two perspectives. Uh, yeah. That's what I was, I did in my dissertation. Right, like really trying to bring these two um, these two worlds together because both are extremely important, but they're two different theoretical frameworks, which has really uh, hampered, I think, um, sort of high uh, the research world. Mm -hmm. Right, well, and they just need to come together for kids. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And and so earlier you talked a little bit of, too about neuroscience. Let's mm -hmm. let's make that like shift. So for okay. one thing, um, for for me when I was when I was trained as a elementary teacher, like in my undergrad program, I never knew anything about cognitive science. So there's mm -hmm. one thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing now to make a leap to from cognitive science and use that as a framework, but also neuroscience, what's mm -hmm. up with that? <laughs> so neuroscience is a relatively recent field. Um, you know, for those studying it, it's only been around, you know, since the 90s. So that's, it's a relatively recent field, um, 20, 20 or 30 years old. Um, and uh, it's crazy. There's a lot written about in neuroscience about reading, right? And I didn't learn that either in my teacher preparation. Um, I really came to it in my PhD, um, sort of beginning to understand the different areas of the brain and um, how they work together to make reading happen. Um, so it makes sense. I guess that's a long way of saying it. it makes sense that you wouldn't have come across it because it's it's still a relatively new field, right? Um, we're still trying to get cognitive science into teacher prep programs. It's like neuroscience, I guess. We'll have to wait a lot longer, but we shouldn't, <laughs> right? We shouldn't because it's really important. As, as I often tell teachers, you know, like, you guys are like on the front lines of building children's brains. You should know what's going on inside them, right? Like we should know what we're building here if we're building brains. Um, and you don't need to know all the name, the official names of the areas, right? I think we've made a mistake, you know, like we don't need to know all the different lobes and how the lobes work and all these other things. But there are a couple key ideas from the neuroscience that I think all all teachers should know. And I guess for me, when I came across the, the research, I was, I was blown away that we know so much about how reading works inside the brain. The book that really, you know, changed my view on things was, um, I'm sure you know the book, The uh, Reading in the Brain, The New Science of How We yep. Read by yep. Dehane. Yeah, we'll link our, our listeners in the show notes to that book. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a great book. And it's written beautifully. And he's a brilliant, brilliant French neuroscientist. Um, and he wrote this book now about 10 years ago, uh, exactly 10 years ago. Um, and it really deconstructs the neuroscience of how we learn to read. So um, what do you tell your students then about the key things from neuroscience that we need to understand about how the brain learns to read? So great question. So, um, well, we always start the class, right, by this over overarching idea that we're not wired for reading, like I mentioned earlier, right? right. That's, that's the first big idea. 
And actually what has to happen is we're going to recycle, and our brains are going to recycle an area of our brain that was, is really designed to recognize faces and objects. We're wired to recognize faces and objects, but not wired to, uh, you know, assign symbol, sounds to symbols and sort of extract meaning from print. Um, and that's the first uh, big idea that we really, um, you, you have to understand, right? In the, in the research, it's called the neuronal recycling hypothesis because mm -hmm. you're, you're recycling or repurposing an area of your brain that was designed to recognize faces and objects. It was not designed to recognize words. Interesting. Right? There is no neuron for every word. <laughs> we, we don't have a reading center. We're not, we're not, you know, born with a biological specialization for reading. Um, we have to construct this circuit. And that's probably like new learning to a lot of people, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It is new learning to a lot of people. And, and I found that people are really interested in it, like kind of fascinated by it. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, it's interesting, right? You, it, reading, learning to read is something, reading is something we all take for granted if you can do it. Right. And, and so many people don't remember how they learned to read. They don't remember what it was like to not be able to read. Right. They, and they just take it for granted now. Um, so when you begin to explain to people, well, actually the skill that you do so automatically and unconsciously, um, a is really, really hard for a lot of kids, <laughs> right? When you're mm -hmm. learning to read, it's difficult. And when you're struggling to learn to read, it's really difficult. So not only is it difficult for kids, but it's difficult for a lot of people who struggle with reading. Um, and, and people are interested in that. Um, and so when you start to be like, yeah, it's difficult because A, we're not wired for it. And B, you know, when you're learning to read in English, we have only 26 letters, but we have 44 sounds. Um, mm. that, that is another challenge. Yeah. Those are the two, two biggest challenges. Our brain is not wired to do this. And we have this code, this alphabetic code um, that has 26 letters and 44 sounds. And when letters come together, they make new sounds. And there's all these different relationships between these letters, right? If, if we just had 26 letters and 26 sounds, it would be fine. But people, yeah, this is new learning. And I, and I think people are interested in it when you present it in the, in the right way. And I always say, like, we should just be amazed that we, that we can do this. Look at what our brain has to do. It has to create highways right? White matter highways between areas of our brain that, that are not wired, right? The three main areas of our brain, the occipital lobe where we're taking in visual information, um, and then areas of the brain that are responsible for speech processing, and areas of our brain that are responsible for making meaning, right? And then the areas of our brain that, that translate symbols and sounds and connect, turn symbols into sounds. Um, and you know, over, over the years, I, I have spent a little less time having students memorize, this is the parietal lobe, this is the angular gyrus, this is, you know, all sort of all the official names. Yeah. Um, I used to think that that was important. I used to think like, oh, if I'm training teachers um, and talking to parents, I have to show, you know, models of the brain and fMRI and label them scientifically, right? But that, again, like, like, what are parents supposed to do with that? Right. right. So I, I explained to them, you know, I have um, a version of the brain and that, you know, is is sort of an animation of how what's going on in your brain in a child's brain over the course of three to, you know, three to four years. 
um, and explaining developmentally, this is what you can expect of each phase and what's happening in the brain and how the speech and language areas come first, right? How spoken right. language develops first. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything else related to reading is built on top of the spoken language network. That's the first network that must be built because it is, a, it is essential to the whole reading circuit. If you don't build the speech areas, right, the phonemic processing and the meaning-oriented areas, oral, oral language, then it, it, you're, you're going to be at such a disadvantage uh, to build the reading network because it's a fundamental part of the reading network. Yeah. Um, and so I do this over time, you know, and I joke a lot of times with parents how, you know, when you're having a baby, there's a book like what's to what to expect when you're expecting, right? you know, and, and when, then when you have a baby, you're like obsessed with, oh, oh, this is what they should be doing by three months. And this is what they should be doing <laughs> at six months and six months. They should have solid food, you know, and by one year old, they should, they should take a first step and all this stuff. And, and then somehow with reading, it's like, read to them and they'll learn to read. You know, but, but actually there's like these fundamental phases of reading that all kids go through. And we know that from the neuroscience and the cognitive science, right? That there are about, there are three main phases. You can also see them as four. There's three to four phases, I should say, of reading that, that, that kids go through. Right. And, and, and I always say there should be a book called like what to expect when you're expecting a reader. Right. This That's is a great one. Do it. In, in, in phase one, you know, it's all about spoken language. It's all about spoken language. Um, and it's, it's the pre-alphabetic phase. It's what I call the pictorial phase when kids are, you know, just in sort of this world of seeing everything as like images mm -hmm. and pictures and they're learning to read based on visual cues. So they might recognize Starbucks or they might recognize McDonald's because of, of the colors, right? And because of the environmental print or logos, but they're not actually reading. Right. Right. But that's, a, that's the beginning of it. So there are these four phases of reading. Um, and, and, and we know, and I feel that, you know, like parents should know this. This is, this is ba as basic as what to expect when you're expecting. Yeah. You know, these are the phases that, that, um, that kids are going to go through. And we know that, right, from the, it, this is talked a lot about in tons of research, but it's also talked about in the book I mentioned, um, The New Science of How We Read. Great. Um, Maybe we can just outline those really quickly, those four phases, and not leave everybody just wondering what they are. <laughs> um, great. So I met, yeah. Um, I, I kind of felt like I was going on and on about it and I wasn't sure. Uh, no, we should. Let's about. talk about them because, talk uh, about the four phases. Great. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Linnea Erie, E-H-R-I, mm -hmm. um, is, it's really her phases. She, she's done the research on this, the cognitive, uh, cognitive research, cognitive science research. Um, really rooted in experimental psychology and has has found these four phases of learning to read, right? Um, so that first phase I talked about is called many names. Um, it can be called the pre-alphabetic or the logographic, or I call it the pictorial. And it's really before kids uh, learn letter sounds and before they have um, any kind of refined phonemic awareness. Um, and the second phase is really when kids, and again, you know, I have a visual for this, um, and it's so, it's, um, it's easier in some ways to, sh to, much easier to show it with a visual, but um, the second phase is when kids move into what's called the partial alphabetic phase. So now they're not just using, you know, visual cues or how words look, 
uh, they're actually using alphabetic cues, right? So they'll see a word um, and they'll look at the initial sound or they'll look at the final letter. But they often make, you know, yeah, they have confusions in that like they'll see the word look, L-O-O-K, and they might call it like, mm. or they might call it lake. Right. Right. Or they might call it lick because they're really only attending to the first and the final uh, consonants in words. Um, so you might see this with kids when kids come to a word like, um, you know, uh, any word that starts with uh, P is puppy or any word that starts with P is pig. Right. right. So they're just looking at the initial sound. Um, and you really see this in their spelling, which is really interesting. So oh. in this second phase called the partial alphabetic phase, um, it's really where kids begin to create in inventive or temporary spellings, right? So they'll write love, L-V. They'll write like, L-K, right? Um, Got it. They'll write mommy, M-E, something like that. So they'll, they'll, they won't be representing all the sounds that they hear. They'll only be representing some sounds. Um, and as they get older, right, and they have instruction, they move into the third phase, um, which is the full alphabetic phase, when kids can actually, they're attending to all the sounds and words, not the just initial and final consonants, but they're attending to the vowels, um, and especially to vowel digraphs, uh, which are when two vowels come together and make one sound, like OO says uh, or OI says oi. Um, that's really what gets kids uh, stumped uh, in, in that third phase. Um, where they're trying to read a whole word and and really struggling with those vowel digraphs. And we see that um, in their spelling as well, right? By that third phase, kids are moving beyond just writing initial and final sounds. Um, they're really writing out all the sounds in wor in a word, um, but they might not be spelling it wrong. So but, that's sorry, that's where the, right. sort of the explicit instruction comes in, or that's where we're starting to do that, more of that mapping in our brain for those multiple combinations of of sounds and letter combinations. Yes, yes. Yeah. In the beginning phases, phases one and two, mm -hmm. the explicit instruction should be about letter sound correspondence and yep. about uh, phonemic awareness. Got it. Right. But by phase, you know, three, that's when we're, you're really using explicit phonics to teach all the more complex mappings mm -hmm. um, that exist in English. Yeah. Like consonant digraphs and vowel digraphs. Um, and then in the fourth phase, um, what kids are should be taught and, and are typically working on um, are multisyllabic words um, and, and be beginning to build up their fluency, right? And so these phases occur, right, over, over many, many years. Um, and we know from what's going on in the brain, what's paralleling that, all of this is that you're when you're learning to read in this phases two and three, you know, and four, um, you're really relying on the phonological root. In, in phase four, you begin to like automatically map these words. You're not sounding them out, which is what's going on in the phonological root in your head. Um, mm -hmm. you, you begin to recognize them um, more rapidly, right? And in a process that's called orthographic mapping. So we know that, you know, we can see these phases in the brain in the sense that in the very beginning, you're really working on, you know, individual letters and sounds. And over time, you're building on like whole word representations. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting. I got a visual in my head right there about, um, you know, road construction. You know, it's, if you don't have a good foundation when you're building a road, <laughs> the road falls apart. And I'm 
from the Midwest, so I saw it all the time, right, with the winters and everything. But um, but it sounds like a similar sort of idea there. Yeah, exactly. And then once you go over uh, one road many times and you know where the speed bumps are, yep, you get better at navigating the road. That's right. Right. So what we see in the brain is that the more words that you hear, that you sorry, that you read, right, the more times you've seen a word, um, you're more likely to recall it the next time. Yeah. Right. And so you're not going to always have to decode a word, right? You're not always going to stumble with it. It's not only always going to be difficult to what difficult for you, but you do have to decode it in order to begin to store it more efficiently. Yep, that makes sense. Well, I don't know. I'm I'm sort of like going back to the why uh, preschool is important, why parents are important. Um, you know, this sort of brings us full circle to you got to start early and you, you need to help parents understand. I think you should work on writing that book for parents, actually. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yes, I've, I've been working on that um, and also working on um, a lot of these, getting these visuals out to parents. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think parents are busy um, and they may or may not have the time to sit down and, and read a book always on this sure but i think that um they do you know they are visuals can really um not just infographics but animations and all kinds of um creative ways of communicating with parents i think is how we how we're going to really bridge this gap yeah i don't think it's about always i mean i don't know if it's always about a book that's sort of how i've been thinking about reaching parents makes that makes a lot of sense to me it's just great that you're thinking about this information from the point of view of a of parents, um, you know, to really make sure that students are as as prepared as they can be when they come to us uh, as little ones and ready to learn how to read. Um, yeah, and you know, and also something that I've learned from talking to parents is parents need to know this, you know, not only to know what to do with their kid at home, but to know sort of how to be a smart consumer of what's out there right. for their kid. Because the app world is full of, this will teach your child to read. And all these products say, this will teach your child to read, right? The other day, someone actually told me in a toy store that crawling helps a child learn to read. Oh, That okay. is like the biggest myth. What is that even based on, <laughs> right? So um, I just think it's, yeah. I, I just think it's it's really important to connect. Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. You know, and, and, and have them realize what's good and what's not so good, right? Yeah. Otherwise, they're, they're vulnerable people, you know? They're, they're going to believe whatever anyone says who pretends to be an expert. Yeah. But that makes a lot be, of sense. They should know the science themselves. It makes a lot of sense to me, a lot of sense. Well, as we sort of wrap up and bring this, this to a close, I always like to end by asking, um, what's the one thing, if you could think of one thing you want the listeners to take away from this episode, uh, what might that be? I would say um, one thing. You can have two if you need two. <laughs> I guess, I mean, I think the people that are listening to your this podcast probably know the what's at stake here, right? Yeah. We have two thirds of kids in our country who are not proficient readers by fourth grade. That's more than half. 
that's a lot of kids, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm just going to assume that your listeners know that or, or care about that. And that's kind of what's brought them here um, to sort of learn more about reading and why we have this problem and what we can do about it and what's complicated about it. So that would be one thing that I would that I think is important to realize that this is a, a serious problem and we need like all hands on deck to solve this problem. Yeah. This is not right. It's been this way for 20 years. We've become numb to this. Um, we have to look at the research. We have to look at the science and we have to look at the latest science, which is the neuroscience. Um, we have to like put all of our heads together. That yeah. would be um, the one, one of the things and not to be scared of it and to just really treat this as a number one national problem. We're, Public education is not working in one of the healthiest and wealthiest countries if it's not serving two thirds of its kids and right. teaching them how to read, like yeah. the basics. Um, and then the second thing I think um, is to make sure that you know we're making it fun and we're making it engaging for kids. Um, with all the seriousness, we end up sometimes um, adopting programs or approaching beginning reading in, in ways that are very dry um, and just trying to like, quote, like deliver instruction um, rather than think about how to design instruction in ways that are super fun and interactive um, with or without technology, right, but not ignoring technology and sort of... Um, Remember that we're working typically with kids who are ages when you're learning to read your age, you know, three or four to seven or eight. And these are kids that really want to play and have fun. And there's a way that we can um, teach the science and teach phonics in particular um, in ways that are fun and engaging. It doesn't have to be drill and kill boring. That sounds like a, a great uh, conversation for another episode, actually, as to how to make this thing fun. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And we can do it, especially with phonemic awareness. For right? sure. Phonemic awareness has been so studied, but, you know, it's also super fun. It is a huge <laughs> scientific construct, but it's extremely fun to play with words and to play with language. And kids love to do it. Yeah, so they sure do. So if parents, like, you know, all these strategies to play with language at home, they'll have fun with their kids and they'll also be, you know, building the phonological root. Well, we will put that in the queue for another episode to dive into making that fun. But we surely appreciate you joining us today and helping us understand a little bit more of the science of reading. Thank you, Susan. This was really fun. We're so grateful to our amazing guest today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast. And we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading, the community, or send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book, or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert from Amplify Education.